Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. Also, if you have a bulletin, pull out your little insert in there. And there's an outline for you to take notes if you'd like to do that. And then also, if you're in a home group this week, there are questions for you. And you will use those in your discussion. Also, it might be good for you to use those, even if your home group's not meeting, just to talk with each other about the sermon. So, maybe at lunch today you can use that. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Well, what does it look like for the Holy Spirit to work in our church? Today, and maybe even sometimes Sometime during this week, there will be people who will go to churches and places of worship, and they will want to experience something spiritual. So what does that look like in a local church? What does it look like for the Holy Spirit to work in our church? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11 answers that. And 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us the Spirit gives gifts of grace for each church member, so that you will edify the church in unity and love. These gifts of grace are what we know as spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are basically God, the Spirit, enabling you to serve the church in different ways. So God has gifted us. The Holy Spirit has given us specific, individual, unique grace gifts so that we can serve Christ and his church. And in 1 Corinthians 12, the focus really is on the Holy Spirit and how he gives those of us in the local church various gifts of grace. And in this chapter, we see this diversity of individuals and gifts, but yet this unity within the church. So how does the Holy Spirit work in our local church, particularly as we gather? We're going to see three ways the Holy Spirit works within our church. First of all, it's through the message. It's through the message of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's message directs us to submit to Jesus as Lord. So the Holy Spirit's message is that Jesus is Lord and his message directs us to submission. Look at verse number one. First Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12.1. Now concerning spiritual Gifts. That's our topic. Brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. The church in Corinth had tremendously been blessed with spiritual gifts. Last week we saw that 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6 says that this church was blessed tremendously with gifts. I mean, they were overflowing with gifts. They had these supernatural abilities by the Holy Spirit to minister to one another. They were not lacking in any gifts. If you look down in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 12, and verse 10 as well, and then down to verse 28, you can see some of these gifts they had. In verse 28, you can see the gift of the apostles. And they had Paul the apostle as their pastor. That's a pretty good pastor, right? They probably had Peter stop by at some point. If you look down in verses 9 and 10, you can see there were healings. There were tongues. That's the ability to supernaturally speak a language you do not know. They had people who are interpreting those tongues. That is someone who doesn't know that language, but they're able to interpret it into a language people do know. They had miracles. So so think about these supernatural gifts that were taking place in the church. And the problem in Corinth was not that they didn't know about these gifts. The problem wasn't that they weren't experiencing these gifts. They knew the gifts. They were experiencing the gifts. The problem was how they exercised those gifts and why they exercised those gifts. You see, the church in Corinth used their spiritual gifts to exalt themselves. They used their spiritual gifts for self-gratification. The church in Corinth viewed spiritual gifts as a means to demonstrate my own spirituality. They viewed the high spiritual life 
as one who was exercising these tremendous gifts of the Spirit, the higher gifts. And particularly, the main spiritual gift they abused was the gift of tongues. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 12 and also in chapter number 14. And Paul wrote to correct them in this. He wrote correcting them that they, that they thought that spirituality was found in exercising tongues and having these healings and these miracles. And, and even in the fact that they knew a lot of scripture. Remember 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up. They were puffed up in their knowledge of the scripture. And Paul teaches here that those spiritual gifts are not signs that you're saved. They're not signs that you're spiritual. In fact, actually, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 14 teach the exact opposite. Some people actually do teach that, that particularly even the gift of tongues is, is, a way, is a sign that you're a believer. But that's actually not taught in the scripture, first of all. Secondly, that's the exact opposite thing that Paul teaches in this text. Well, why is that? Well, because Paul is teaching that true spirituality is not in exercising your gifts, it's not in having the great gifts. True spirituality is actually submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Notice verse number two through verse three. Verse two, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God, ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So in, so in verse 2, Paul reminded them of what they thought spirituality was before they were saved. What did they think spirituality was? Well, they were pagans or Gentiles. That means they were far from God. They were without hope. They were destined for eternity without God in hell. Notice verse number two. They were led astray to worship idols. Those idols would have been idols like Zeus, Aphrodite, Poseidon. They would have had small statues in their homes, and they would have gone to temples with large statues. They would have offered sacrifices and prayed to those pieces of stone. And they trusted that those gods would help them in some way. They trusted those gods could save them in some way and work on their behalf. And so those people who worshiped those idols, they craved for, for some type of spiritual experience in those temples before those idols. And so they recited chants and prayers. They even indulged in gluttony and alcohol and immorality in those temples because they wanted to get this spiritual high. They wanted to be connected spiritually to that God. But the truth is, they were just bowing before a piece of stone. I was reading an article that talked about a mummified so-called mermaid. For the past 300 years, this so-called mermaid that was found 300 years ago has sat in a Japanese temple and people have come to worship this mummified mermaid. I guess the legend is that mermaids can give you um, everlasting life. They can give you immortality. And so worshipers go even today to this temple and they offer their incense, they light candles, and they petition this mermaid to help them, particularly with healing. In fact, during the uh, COVID-19 stuff, people would go here and ask for protection from this mermaid. Very sad. Last year, a university studied this idol and they discovered that this so-called mermaid was actually just a bunch of paper, cloth, and fish parts. It's a fraud, which we know that, right? It's obvious. But how sad is it that for hundreds of years, people have been going to this thing thinking that it's going to give them something, thinking that it's going to help them in some way. And verse 2 is saying, though, that every person actually in this world is led away from Christ 
to things like this. They're led away from trusting in the Lord. And what is it that leads them away? What leads a person away from Christ? Or I should say, who leads them away? Well, flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That should be one page over, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And let me remind you that Paul already addressed this. 1 Corinthians 10, you can see the scripture plainly teaches that idol worship is energized by demons. 1 Corinthians 10, 20. I know, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So go back to 1 Corinthians 12. Paul is saying here that you are led away. It's a passive. It's someone doing it to you. And who is doing that? It's demons. It's a good reminder here that the source of all false gospels, of all false religions, of anything that opposes Christ and his truth is Satan and his demonic forces. Satan is a liar. Satan offers counterfeit. Satan leads people away from Christ. doesn't matter how spiritual it looks, how spiritual it it feels. Even if you slap the label of Jesus on it, if it diminishes the work of Christ, if it leads you to trust yourself or to trust another religion, then it's not of the Holy Spirit. It's of Satan. So the question here is, does, does this lead you to submit to the lordship of Christ? As we're considering what, what, how do we distinguish between something that's of Satan and something that's of God, the question is, is does it cause me to submit to Jesus Christ? Does it exalt Jesus as the only Savior, the only Lord? Notice that in verse number three. Therefore, he says in verse three, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So Paul presents the two messages really of this world. That is the message that leads people away from Christ, that curses the name of Christ, and the message that is the gospel message, and that is Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So notice the first message. No one speaking in the spirit ever says Jesus is accursed. The idea of saying here isn't just speaking words. It's the idea of of confessing, of declaring allegiance to. So the Holy Spirit will never lead someone to, to diminish the work of Christ, will never lead someone to curse Christ. No, the Spirit's message is what? No one can say Jesus is Lord, you can't confess Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, so the Spirit directs us to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. That is the most basic Christian confession that there is. Two weeks ago, we heard a message from Carl on the name of Jesus. And in the New Testament, the name, when we say the name, that is a reference to the divine name, the Old Testament name Yahweh. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God, God in the flesh, who came and lived a holy life, pleasing his father, who died on the cross and rose again and ascended on high. And he is, Philippians chapter two, he is the Lord, right? Every knee will bow before him. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's the promise? You will be saved. That's right. And that's not just talking about some words, saying some words out of your mouth or thinking something in your inner person. It's saying that you're confessing in your inner person that you are a sinful person, that you are insufficient to save yourself. There's nothing else that can save you. There's only one, that is Jesus Christ. He is the Lord, and you submit your life to him. You believe in him, and you believe that he is the resurrected Savior. And that is only possible. It's only possible for a person to believe that, to have that in their heart, to have that come out on their lips, 
truly come out in their lips by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's saying in verse number three. So if we want to know what true spirituality looks like, what is true spirituality? It's submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Many people in churches and religions, they long for a spiritual experience, right? They go into cathedrals, they light candles, they listen to a, a priest chant things. They just, they want to feel something. They long for this spiritual experience. And sometimes, actually, you know what? They feel a spiritual experience. I would say many times they actually do feel a, feel a spiritual experience. But that is not the Holy Spirit. And that's the scary thing about that. You can actually have a spiritual experience, and it's not the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit does not lead you to trust yourself, does not lead you to trust a religion, doesn't lead you to trust that a priest can listen to your sins and he can forgive your sins. It leads you to Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can save. He's the only Lord we submit to. So spirituality leads us to submission to Jesus. Spirituality is not found in a feeling or in a religious atmosphere or in even in religious sincerity. A lot of people think about it like that. Well, as long as you're sincere. No, it leads you, the Holy Spirit leads you to submission to Jesus. I think even many evangelicals have a distorted view of spirituality. Many people come to even church like this, and I've heard people say, well, I just want to come to a service and just feel the Holy Spirit. I just want to get hit in the face with the music and just have the Spirit of God overcome and just feel that. And they, they consider that to be spirituality. But let me ask this question, if you've ever thought that way, do you come to worship because it makes you feel a certain way, way? Because you love the worship, or do you come because you love the Savior? And there is a difference with that. We don't sing songs so we can feel a certain way. We sing songs because we love Jesus. Because we see the truth up there and we say, that's true, I believe it, and yes, it will make us feel a certain way, okay? Feelings are not wrong. They're good, but they're the result of truth applied by the Holy Spirit in our heart. There are talks on the news about a spiritual revival. Have you seen that? Is that happening? It seems like there's some things happening. But obviously I'm not there, so I don't know. But how do we know if that's a real spiritual revival? How do we know if our church will experience or is experiencing a true spiritual revival? Well, here's the answer. People will submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's preaching, the preaching the word. That's how God gives life. It's through preaching and people submitting to Jesus as Lord. That, that means that God will, God will change people's lives. People who are liars will confess they are liars. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the cleansing of the blood of Christ, they will tell the truth. Gossip speakers will change to be grace speakers. Thieves will confess that they're thieves and they will turn to be givers, dividers to reconcilers, not by their own power, not by their own grace, but by the work of the Holy Spirit as they're saved and they're redeemed and they are sanctified. So the true work of the Holy Spirit in our church is when we submit to Jesus Christ as the Lord. So that's the message of the Spirit. How about the manifestation of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit manifests himself through each member as they unite together to edify one another. The Holy Spirit manifests himself through each one of us, through each member, as we unite together to edify one another. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everything. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So notice in verse 4, 5, and 6, you see this 
Trinitarian work of God in the church. And by Trinitarian or Trinity, what we mean is that God is one being who eternally exists as three distinct persons. So not three gods, one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. And you can see in verse 4, 5, and 6, the three persons of the Godhead that unite together to work in the church. And, And God unites believers in a variety of ways with a variety of gifts to serve in a variety of functions that unites, unites them together as one local church. Look at verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. So here's the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, third person of the Godhead. It's his role to gift us in various ways. In fact, look at verse 11. You can see this is reiterated again in verse 11. One and the same spirit who apportions, so that's the verb apportions, that's actually found in a noun form in verse four as varieties. So you could say it like this, the Holy Spirit gives varieties of gifts to each one individually in the church. Look at verse five. There are varieties of service but the same Lord. Now, who is the Lord? We learned in verse 3 that Jesus is the Lord, right? So Jesus is the Lord. He is the head of the church. He is the one who leads. We follow him. And so think about it this way. We follow Jesus Christ. We serve Jesus Christ as we serve his church. So he says in verse number 5, there are varieties of service, varieties of ways we could serve but we're all serving who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so the spirit gifts, Jesus is the head of the church. And notice verse six, it's the father who works. There are, verse six, there are varieties of activities. The word activities means basically work. So there's a variety of ways that you can work in the local church, but it is the same God who empowers. That's actually the same word as work or activities there. So it's the same God who works them all in everyone. In other words, there are many ways to work, but God the Father, he is at work in all of us. And so verses four, five, and six present that God works in a a unity of diversity, not in a university, (laughs) in a unity of diversity, So think about it this way. When we gather as a church, we glorify God. We follow Christ and submit to him. We depend upon the Holy Spirit. When we do that, we are reflecting the unity and diversity of the Godhead. The Trinity works in a perfect unity. Each person of the three persons, they fulfill their distinct roles. In the church, we are to to work in a unity as each of us fulfill the distinct roles roles that God has gifted to us by the Holy Spirit. So unity in a church isn't just what God wants. He does want that, but it's not just what God wants. It's actually a reflection of who God is. Your function in the church isn't just about obeying a command to serve. It's actually a way to be godly, to fulfill what God wants you to do. I think about some of the uh, people in our church who give lessons, music lessons to children. Some of our ladies in our church do piano lessons. So think about someone who's giving piano lessons. Maybe they start with a three or four-year-old, and that child, through the months and in the years, practices. That's an important one, right? They're learning. They're practicing. In some sense, they're, they're mimicking that teacher. And as that child develops and they mirror their teacher, they become better. It reflects upon that teacher. There's, there's, in some sense, there's more honor for that teacher as that child develops and gets better. And I even think about that, that one of those recitals they have, and it's one of the ones when they're in college or beyond, you know, and that, that student is playing maybe, maybe even beyond that teacher and the pride that that teacher would have in their hearts. I want you to think about that in just relation to the triune God. 
the more and more our church unifies together as a unity that is diverse, the more we reflect God and the more we honor him. So the Holy Spirit's at work and he manifests himself through each member. Notice verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Manifestation means to make visible. So the Holy Spirit is invisible, and he is made visible through you and me as we use his gifts to serve one another. When you came in this morning, I'm pretty certain, maybe there wasn't, I'm pretty certain I saw greeters out there greeting people. You saw security people that are around. Maybe you didn't see them because they're, you know, not letting you see that they're around. When you came in, they were, they were, the, this place was cleaned up. Do you know that those greeters, those security individuals, those who clean this room, that was the Holy Spirit made visible to you as this person used, those people used their gifts. Some of you went to the nine o'clock hour and you listened to teachers and those teachers represented the Holy Spirit. They were actually making the Holy Spirit visible through their teaching. The point is, as we grow, as we come, as we serve one another, we're making the the Holy Spirit visible as we serve one another in unity. And notice the very end of verse 7. Here's the reason that we have these spiritual gifts. It's for the common good. It's not for ourselves. It's to serve the church. And when we bury our gifts, or if we don't use our gifts, we are preparing the spiritual graveyard of the local church. But when you depend upon the Spirit's grace to love and help other believers in your local church, you're building Christ's church. That's what this text is teaching. And then, last of all, the Spirit works through his ministry to gift us uniquely for what the church needs. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to uniquely grace each member for what that church needs. In the next few verses here, we observe that the Holy Spirit, he knows you personally. He knows what, what the church needs and how you can serve the church. So look at verse number seven. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So that's each person. And then verse number eight, through verse number 10, we see these gifts that were given to this church. Verse number eight, for to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another, the abilities, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So what are these gifts here listed in verse, verses 8 through 10? You want to know? I do too. Let's look at it here. I want you to first notice this, and that is that many, if not all of these gifts, many of these gifts deal with the message of the word of God, either declaring the word of God or verifying the message and the messenger is of God. So why would Paul list spiritual gifts that deal with the message of God's word? Well, I want you to remember that Paul is addressing Local church worship, particularly when the church gathers to worship Christ. And so go to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 18. So just one chapter, maybe it's above chapter 12 for you there. The same page, 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. There's a lot of verses I could go into this chapter, but just this one verse to show you this. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. 18. For in the first place, notice, when you come together, when you gather together as a church. 
So here, clearly, is a local church. This is not the universal church, right? Because the whole universal church is not gathering together, right? This is a local church coming together to worship. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So that's a few chapters over. 1 Corinthians 14. Look in verse 23. Again, we're talking about worship in the local church. 1 Corinthians 14, 23. If therefore the whole church, that's the whole local church, the whole church comes together, gathers together. Verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together? Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So what I want you to notice is the context here is the church gathering for worship. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12 even starts by addressing this, about addressing spirit-empowered speaking. Look at verse 3. We already uh, taught on this verse, but notice this. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking, so notice there's someone speaking in the spirit, ever says Jesus is accursed. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The speaking here likely is speaking about someone standing up in some type of group setting, a a church setting, whether it's public or private, and they're declaring something. They're speaking something. And so I would argue here that the context of these gifts are in speaking the word of God. Now, I would not state that dogmatically. It's not a hill I would die on. But I think it's a good observation to make as we go through this. So 1 Corinthians 12, 8. Let's just talk through some of these. 1 Corinthians 12, 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. The word utterance is the Greek word logos. It's speaking of a word or words of wisdom. Now, if you were with us when we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, what are the words of wisdom? What is the word of wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2? Well, it's not Proverbs. It's not witty sayings. It's not worldly wisdom. God's wisdom is wisdom of the what? Of the cross. It's the preaching of the cross. It's the ability to take the gospel and apply it to people's lives. So that's what we see here. This is the word of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 12 a also says to another, the utterance. Again, the word, the words of knowledge according to the same spirit. So what are these words of knowledge? Well, again, if you were to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, remember that there is knowledge. Remember, knowledge puffs up. And that's what it was talking about in 1 Corinthians 8. So they need to not just have knowledge, but also have love for one another. But the knowledge in the context there and here is knowledge of God's word. And so to one is given the ability to communicate the knowledge of God's word. So I think it's the ability to understand, to put the scriptural pieces of the puzzle together, and then the ability to communicate that. And then notice verse number nine. To another, faith by the same spirit. This is not saving faith. Saving faith is a gift of God. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But this faith is an extraordinary faith that is beyond faith in salvation. And I think it particularly is faith in regard to the local church in regard to spreading the word of God, to spreading the message of salvation. I mean, I think about Paul the apostle who, who walked into Corinth and he had nothing. He had no one, right? I mean, he just walked in, as far as we know, with a shirt on his back. There was no U-Haul truck behind him with all his possessions. He didn't have any other friends with him. And he stepped out into that city by faith. I think that was a gift of faith. I mean, he walked into the pagan center of the Roman Empire right there in Corinth. I mean, there's temples all around. And he trusted that God could take care of his financial needs, his physical needs, his spiritual needs, and that God could use the gospel to start a church there. And God did provide for him, didn't he? And, uh, he had Quilla and what? Quilla and Priscilla. God used them to help provide for his physical needs. And then we saw the gospel work in Corinth. We saw, we, you can look at Acts chapter 18. You can look back and see there actually was a church that started right next door to the synagogue. Even the, the leaders of the synagogue 
came to Christ and probably were elders in the church. The point is, that was a gift of faith. Or consider William Carey. William Carey is the father of modern missions. He was a shoemaker in England, and yet he traveled to India. So the least likely person to do this, he traveled to India to preach the gospel. The English opposed him. English pastors even told him he was a fool. The East Indian Company, that was the British economic arm in India, in that part of the world, they decreed that it was illegal to proselytize Indians in India, particularly in the areas that had not been reached for the gospel. And yet William Carey went anyways. And he famously said this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And he went by faith. And I think that's this faith right here. It's this unique ability to trust God when things seem impossible. And he went to India. He saw the gospel work. People were saved. In fact, not just that. He opened the door for the English-speaking missionaries to go into India, but also around the world. And read that story. It's remarkable. It was a gift of faith God gave him. I think even many of you have exercised this faith to some extent. I read that this past year, 700, no, past three years, in the past three years, 700,000 people left California. That's a lot of people, isn't it? I guess we have a lot of people in California too, though. But, but I think about our church, I think about many of you, many of you have stayed in California, and not just in California, but stayed at Lighthouse, through maybe some opportunities that you had to leave, maybe even through some of the turmoil the church has experienced maybe some, some years in the past. And, and you had this faith that God could still do something at a church like this. Like you believed that God could revive a church like this. And so you stayed. That honestly takes faith, right? When other people said, well, I'm out of here, or I'm doing something else. And, and some of those people had good motives, so don't get me wrong what I'm saying about them. I'm just saying there are people that have this extraordinary faith that say, I want to see the gospel work here, and I believe God can do something. And that's what we need. We need that in the church. We need that to be able to evangelize our city. We need people with that kind of faith that go out into our community and give the gospel because they believe that God can save souls. And so look at verse number nine. You have faith. Also, you have the gifts of healing. Verse 10, working miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, and interpreting tongues. Well, there's a lot going on here, isn't there? We don't have time to deal with it all. In the next few weeks, I'm going to actually devote an entire sermon on the gift of tongues and also on prophecy. And I'm going to really wait until we get to 1 Corinthians 14 because that's what that chapter really hones in on, explains both those gifts in detail. But I do want to cover in general these gifts and also notice how it's related to the proclamation of the word of God. So notice in verse 10. You have prophecy. And I think grouped together with prophecy is the ability to distinguish between spirits. You have tongues, and grouped with that is the um, interpretation of tongues. So I'm not going to deal with prophecy, you know, uh, detailed, but let me just do a broad overview of it. Prophecy is really a broad term for speaking for God. Prophecy literally means to speak forth. So it could be, and it's, at times it is, New revelation being spoken forth. Sometimes it is speaking forth the future, or sometimes it's just someone speaking God's word. Sometimes it's someone just giving a testimony about what God is doing in their life. So it's a very broad term. The gift to distinguish between spirits probably relates to prophecy. It is the gift that some were given to be able to distinguish uh, if someone was saying something that was truth or error. In other words, someone stood up and they were speaking on behalf of God and someone else could say, actually, this is true or that is not true. So all these gifts, and I would say the other gifts here, are gifts that we call sign gifts. Even I would say prophecy in some extent, there are certain aspects of prophecy that are sign gifts. But the, the rest of these gifts that I have not mentioned yet, they're sign gifts. What are sign gifts? Sign gifts are supernatural works of the Holy Spirit 
to verify that the message or the messenger was from God. So when you get medication or when you watch a commercial about medication, some point in there, you'll probably see that that was verified by the U.S. government. In other words, when you get a medication, you want to know that this stuff is safe. I'm not going to get into that whole topic right now, okay? But my point is that there, there are times where you want to see that something is actually verified, something is approved. And that's what, that's what sign gifts did. They approved that what this person was saying was from God, or this person who is a messenger is a messenger of God. So I have a little graph I put up here. We're actually going to go through this in a couple weeks in more detail. But I, can you see that? Is that too small for you? That is a small font, isn't it? Sorry about that. But I put up here the five New Testament passages that list the spiritual gifts. And then I put them in two different categories here. One category are temporary gifts. And the other category are the continuing gifts. So in the temporary gifts, you have the sign gifts. Also in the temporary gifts, you have the apostles the office of the apostle and the office of prophet, the office of apostle and prophet have passed away. They've ceased to continue. And there are sign gifts, and these sign gifts have ceased as well. And the temporary gifts edify the church by communicating or verifying special revelation. And the continuing gifts that we have today edify by equipping the church to grow. And so notice these sign gifts, verse 9 and 10, healing, miracles, tongues, interpretation of tongues. And I, like I said, I think you could throw prophecy in there as well. These are temporary gifts that were given for a special purpose. Now, the modern charismatic theology views that the temporary gifts continue today. But in order to do that, you really have to repurpose the gifts. You have to say, well, there's a new purpose for them now, or you ignore the purpose that it was originally intended for. So one of the keys to understanding these gifts right here, these sign gifts, is to understand the original biblical purpose. What was the purpose of sign gifts like healing and miracles and tongues? Well, they were given at times when new revelation was being disclosed. So God was giving new revelation, and these sign gifts authenticated that this new message or this new messenger was from God. So think about a couple passages here. Think about Moses. This happened to Moses. He gave new revelation from God. So in Exodus chapter 4, he gives signs to Israel and also to Pharaoh. In verse four, chapter 4, verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord is the Lord who has appeared to you. Or think about this one after the parting of the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 14, verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And what was the result of this great miracle of God dividing the Red Sea? They believed in the Lord and in his servant, that's God's messenger, Moses, What happens right after this? It's the giving of the law. Or about in the Old Testament, in Joel chapter 2, you see that there's a prophecy that signs will come someday. There will be people speaking, uh, they'll be giving visions and prophecy. So Joel chapter 2, verse 27 says, you shall know that I am in the midst. Here's how you're going to know that I'm in the midst of Israel, that I'm working, that I am the Lord your God, and there's none else. Verse 28, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You'll have to study that to see what that means. But just to kind of highlight that verse, think about Jesus as well. John chapter 10, he's being rejected by the Jewish people. And so he says, even though you do not believe me, believe my works, believe the signs that I'm giving that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And then in Acts chapter 2, again, we'll look at this more closely in a few weeks, but Acts 2, Joel's prophecy came true. The message of the gospel was verified through the sign of tongues. Acts 2, 6, at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own tongue in his own language. In other words, there were people standing up and they were speaking another language that they did not know, but other people did know. In verse 16, 
Peter says, why did this happen? Why did people speak in tongues like this? This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In other words, this verifies the message is true. And what's the message? Repent and believe the gospel. You see, the message is not come and be healed. The message is not come and speak in tongues. The message is believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ. That's why he says in that sermon that all who call upon the name of the Lord may be saved. Probably the best text, most clear text about this is in Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. So salvation was declared by the Lord. It was attested to by those of us who heard it. That's the apostles and the disciples. Verse 4, while God also bore witness... There you go. He bore witness. He verified by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so that's just a general overview to say that there are sign gifts that that tell us that the messenger and the message was true. So now go to verse number nine. And let's notice a couple of these. Verse nine, you have healings. You have healings. This was a gift that God gave to individuals to be able to heal. What does that mean? Okay, so we have supposed healings going on in churches and on TV, and someone has a backache, and, you know, and someone lays hands on them, and I guess their back is healed or whatever. But but what we're talking about with healings, what we see in the New Testament and the Gospels and Acts, this this is not like your back is hurting and it it feels better. Jesus, when he healed blind men, he actually regenerated their eyeballs, right? When, When Paul saw someone who was dead, he actually raised that person to life. That, that, that was a dead body that came back to life. When, when Peter helped a crippled man who had never walked before walk, I mean, this man was able to stand up and leap like he was an athlete. And so a miracle is, or a, a, sorry, a healing is the ability to be able to restore someone's body back to health. And, and why would that happen? Why did Paul do that in Jesus and Peter? Well, it was to verify their message was from God. And again, Was the message of Jesus, come be healed? Was the message of Peter, come be healed? No, the message was, believe the gospel, right? And let me show you that my message is true. Here are the signs that God promised would happen. Now, I do believe God can heal. I do believe that that's something that God can still do today. I don't think there's a supernatural gift that God gives to someone to be able to do that. I think we follow James chapter 4. James 4 says, if someone's sick, what do you do? Call the elders, call the leadership. Let's pray for that person. So I think God can heal, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's something that's guaranteed. In fact, actually, do you realize sometimes God's gift to us is not healing. God's gift to us is suffering. That's Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. God actually gives that to us sometimes for the advancement of the gospel and for the best gift that we can receive, and that is becoming more like Jesus Christ. How about verse number 10, miracles? I think this is a word we use flippantly. You know, we're, we have people over to our house and we see more people are coming in and we go, oh, I don't know if I have enough food. And so we go into the kitchen, we go, oh, what are we gonna do? And the night ends and, oh, there was enough food. And we say, oh, wow, it's like a miracle. Like, I don't know how everyone was able to eat. That's great. That's not a miracle, right? A miracle would be not having enough food. You go to the refrigerator, open it up, there's no food. You close it, open it up, and poof, the whole thing's full of food. That's a miracle, okay? The other one is God's providence. And God does providentially, graciously work through natural means, through natural laws. You know, you're driving down the road and you skid on something and you go off the road and you miss the light pole. You miss it by a foot, you know, and you go, oh, that's a miracle. No, that's God's kind providence. A miracle would be if you slid against the light pole and you actually passed through it, like the molecules of your car and the molecules of that light pole passed through and you went on the other side and you're like, nothing happened. That's a miracle, okay? And can God do miracles? Absolutely, he can. But generally, God today is working through his providential means, through natural processes. Verse 10, we have tongues. Again, this is the ability to supernaturally speak another known language that you don't know yourself, but someone else in the world does know this. And that actually also the ability, someone else to have the ability to interpret that to people in the audience that don't know that language. So again, why would God give these gifts? I mean, think about this. 
Why, why does the church of Corinth have these gifts, and why don't we have these gifts? Well, let me just say briefly, think about the timing of Paul going into Corinth. I mean, Paul goes into Corinth 49, 50 AD. That's about 16, 17 years after Christ ascends. There's only two books of the Bible that have been written at that point, Galatians and James, the book of James, and they probably hadn't made it to Corinth yet, right? So when Paul walks into Corinth, we don't have this this new testament we have before us today, right? We don't have the sufficient scriptures. And so they needed these sign gifts as people stood up and declared the apostles' message to verify that this was God's word. So then you say, well, how do we apply this to us, Pastor Ben? This is a lot of good information. Well, what's interesting about this is the Holy Spirit knew what this church needed at this time. The Holy Spirit is sovereign in his knowledge. He knows what we need. And the Holy Spirit, he knows our church too. He knows what we need. And what's amazing about the Holy Spirit's work is that he comes to a church like this within believers and gifts them just for what this church needs The Holy Spirit's ministry is to uniquely grace each one of us for what our church needs. Praise God for that. And that's what he says in verse 11. All of these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually. So the Holy Spirit is at work in our church. When we sing, when we preach, when we talk with one another. The Holy Spirit directs us to submit to Jesus Christ as the Lord. And so here's the question. Are you surrendered to Jesus Christ this morning? Like, have you given your life to him? Are you believing the gospel? Are you living a life of submission to him and his word? The Holy Spirit is at work manifesting himself through each one of us as we serve. So, Are we serving? And if so, are we depending upon the Spirit to work through us? We are trusting that the Spirit is working in our church. He knows what our church needs. If you're a ministry leader, let me encourage you that the Spirit of God knows what you need in your ministry. And if you need someone in your ministry, probably what should you do? First thing, pray, right? And ask the Spirit of God to to show you someone who maybe is gifted in this area so they can come and serve. May we be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our church. Let's pray.